Redbox Media Programming is brought to you by... We've got good news. The world is open again, and people like you, people of faith, are traveling to Catholic sites around the world. Want to travel with exceptional Catholic leaders this fall, next year, or in the future? Are you looking to see specific sites, celebrate traditional Latin Mass, or travel to destinations without vaccine requirements? We are here to help you deepen your faith on pilgrimage. Give us a call at 1-800-842-4842 or visit us online at selectinternationaltours.com. Select International Tours is your pilgrimage company, and we have the perfect Catholic trip for you. Are you looking to serve God and society? Consider putting your gifts to work as a lawyer. Ave Maria School of Law has been educating faith-filled lawyers for over 20 years. Ave Maria School of Law is committed to training lawyers to use law appropriately around the moral issues of our time. Visit AveMariaLaw.edu to learn more about integrating your faith with a law degree. Welcome back to Off the Shelf here on Breadbox Media. I'm your host, Pete Sox, a Catholic book blogger. Today we have with us Mike Aquilina. He's the author of many books about the early church, including The Fathers of the Church, The Mass of the Early Christians, The Healing Imperative, and How the Choir Converted the World. He's executive vice president of the St. Paul Center and a contributing editor to Angelus News. He is past editor of New Covenant Magazine and the Pittsburgh Catholic. He's hosted 11 series on EWTN and two documentary films, and he appears weekly on the Sunrise Morning Show. Today, we'll be discussing his book, How the Fathers Read the Bible, Scripture, Liturgy, and the Early Church. Welcome back to the show, Mike. Hey, thanks for having me back, Pete. Oh, absolutely. So... I know you and I have discussed this before, but to save listeners the trouble of searching through 240 episodes, uh, how does your interest in the Church Fathers begin? And anyone who's read your books knows that's obviously your wheelhouse. Wow. Well, when I was a little kid, uh, I read the story of Heinrich Schliemann's discovery of ancient Troy. He was an archaeologist, and, and it just seemed so exciting. It seemed like such an adventure. And I said, wow. I want to be like that. I want to make a great discovery with, you know, some ancient temple filled with gold and, <laughs> and have that kind of excitement and that kind of glory. Um, so, I, you know, if anybody asked me, what are you going to be when you grow up? I'd say an archaeologist. But over time, I learned that uh, what archaeologists do most of the time is pretty, pretty tedious. They have to sift through sand and uh, and kind of comb through things with a toothbrush and a toothpick and and they don't often find really big things like like temples and gold so uh, so I, I I kind of shifted in uh, and started doing my digging in books and <laughs> I, I I was fascinated when I was little um, by the ancient world and as I grew in my faith that kind of overlapped with my um, my interest in in in, uh, in, in the Catholic in Catholic history, mm -hmm. um, that, uh, that I'd, I'd read the ancient fathers and I'd, I'd just be, be completely absorbed in it. I, I was so excited when I read them and I felt like I was learning so much and they gave me an imaginative entry into that world. So, you know, when I got 
got to be a grown up and I became a writer, I wanted to to share that imaginative entry, that portal with as many others as I could. You know, though, Mike, uh, Indiana Aquilina has a ring to it. <laughs> it does. It kind of has a rhythm. Uh, yeah, but I, you know, I was dreaming my dreams before uh, before Indiana Jones uh, <laughs> movies came about. So so Schliemann was my guide, and <laughs> and I and I encountered him in books. So, how did this particular book, uh, "How the Fathers Read the Bible," come to be? Hmm. That's a good question. Well, a few years, you know, Pete, that I'm. I'm uh, affiliated with the St. Paul Center for Biblical Theology, mm-hmm. and I have been since its founding. And one of the things we do is we put out uh, educational video series, you know, for people who want to do parish studies or study study groups in their home or anything like that. Mm-hmm. And uh, a few years, we put one out on the Bible and the Church Fathers, and people just got so interested in it, so absorbed in it, that they... They sent us notes saying, hey, we would really like to learn more about this. Why don't you publish a book on it? So Emmaus Road Press, uh, which is the publisher, um, the publishing arm of the St. Paul Center, uh, asked me if I would write such a book. And and I was happy to do so. And so I wrote How the Fathers Read the Bible, Scripture, Liturgy, and the Early Church. And, uh, and that's what's out there now. I hope it satisfies the need that a lot of people expressed after they did mm-hmm. the video series. So, sort of the last foundation here for Conversation Day, why is it important for us to make the connection to the Church Fathers when it comes to interpreting Scripture? Because the, for the Church Fathers, uh, the liturgy was kind of the natural and the supernatural habitat of sacred Scripture. If we look at the the Bible, you know, all the books of the Bible, they were written for many reasons. Uh, they serve a lot of different purposes. But I'd say all of them were written to be proclaimed in the liturgy, in the assembly of God's people. That's true of the Old Testament as well as the New Testament. If you look at the Old Testament, when Moses receives the law from God, he presents it to the people. He, he reads it to the assembly. Mm-hmm. And then what? He sprinkles them with the blood of the covenant. He says, this is the blood of the covenant. Behold, the blood of the covenant. Uh, So it's part of a sacrificial ritual. And we see this repeated throughout the Old Testament at the time of Josiah, the reforms of Josiah. Same thing, that public recitation of scripture in a liturgical assembly. Same thing at the time of Nehemiah. Um, You get to the New Testament, and our Lord himself repeats the words of Moses practically, when he institutes the Eucharist, you know, he says he says that this cup is the covenant in my blood. And and the, the, the books of the New Testament, the Gospels, as well as the epistles, were written to be read in that Eucharistic context, hmm. in the Eucharistic assembly, when the church met for the breaking of the bread and the prayers, as we see in Acts 2.42. Um, so, 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 so much of the Bible you know, is just so obviously written to be read aloud, not just read on paper, because at that time, very few people were literate. Very few people could read. Mm-hmm. Uh, so so uh, so the, the the mass was the place where they received the word of God. They, they heard it. St. Paul said faith comes by hearing. And he had good reason to say that because he knew that most of the people who encountered the word of God were encountering it in this way when they went to Mass. 
uh, if we read St. Paul's letters, we find instructions for the readers of his letters when people read them aloud in the assembly. Uh, we find the same thing in the book of Revelation, that there are instructions for the lectors, for the people who are reading the books aloud in the assembly. So the Mass was the ordinary place to encounter the scriptures. That's, that's, uh, that's why the scriptures were written. That's what they were written for. That's, that's their purpose. So the fathers understood this. Mm -hmm. The fathers talked about this explicitly, and the fathers lived this. And you know what? We're still living it today. But so few of us recognize that. So few of us realize that because today we can own Bibles. I'm turning around right now in my <laughs> office, and I'm looking at a shelf that's filled with Bibles, different translations, different editions, different languages. They're all there on those shelves. You know, that that's not the way it was in the ancient world. As I said before, most people could not read. There were no printing presses for mass production of books, so they could not own a Bible. Today, we can even have the Bible on our smartphone, along with so many Bible study aids. They couldn't do any of that. Mm -hmm. And not only that, it was illegal to own the books of the Bible, and you could be executed for it because it was a capital crime. Uh, so, so, again, uh, they did not have that luxury, and it's hard for us to imagine such a world where these media don't exist, where the Bible is inaccessible apart from the Mass. Right. So what I wanted to do with this book is to give people an imaginative entry into that world. So that raises a question. Um, Catholics are perhaps unjustly pinned as being, you know, we don't read the Bible— but you've just established through that uh, five-minute explanation of that last question that the Mass was the only way that the early Christians received uh, Scripture. So how do we counteract that with uh, our non-Catholic brothers and sisters when they make that accusation? The best way to counteract it is by actually studying the Bible and getting to know it with those tools that we have today. Because I think it's wonderful that we have those tools, that we can own books, that we can mm -hmm. have the software, that we can search the scriptures in a microsecond. That's a wonderful thing, and we should use it to the, to the utmost, because anything we do to deepen our knowledge of the Word of God is a good thing. Um, I've never really understood the accusation. We don't use scripture the way Protestants do, because we don't believe that's the way that we don't believe they're doing it the way the, the writers of Scripture intended. Mm -hmm. You know, we don't we tend not to memorize things. We tend not to cite chapter and verse, because in the beginning there were no chapters. Mm -hmm. There were no verse numbers. That just was not done. Again, faith came by hearing. It's, we listened to the Scriptures and we absorbed them. And I don't know any denominations out there that employ the Scriptures to the extent that Catholics do. Every Sunday, we have four full readings, long readings from the Bible. We have an Old Testament reading, a psalm, we have a New Testament epistle, and then we have the reading from the gospel. Mm -hmm. Now, I've attended a lot of Protestant churches down the years, and I've, I've never encountered a Protestant church that uses that much unless they're following, they're actually following the Catholic lectionary, <laughs> the revised common lectionary that's now applied in some of the liturgical Protestant churches. But for the most part, what I've encountered, especially in evangelical churches, is a preacher who will take a verse or two verses or or an episode in Scripture mm -hmm. and and comment on that in his sermon. You know, that's 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 it. 
it's pretty tiny, though, the amount of Scripture compared to what we have every Sunday in a Catholic church. Now, we follow the lectionary, which prescribes readings for every day and then every Sunday. And the lectionary takes us through an awful lot of the Bible over every three-year period. So we're exposed to many of the words in the Bible. Uh, and if you go to Mass every day or on some weekdays, you're going to be exposed to a lot more because the lectionary also prescribes uh, the readings for those days. Mm -hmm. uh, it, it's it's, it's, it's a, a lot more exposure, I think, than Protestants get. Because if um, if they're not following the revised common lectionary over those three years, then what they tend to get is um, the the verses that are of particular interest to their particular pastor, uh, and that may be your experience too. I know I know Pete that you're a convert yep. to the to yep. the faith. That's yeah. pretty much how it was for me. Yeah, yeah. So I you know I think that that it's kind of an unjust accusation that's often leveled against Catholics. I was raised. Um, in a home where my mother had a deep appreciation for the the renewal of biblical studies that was going on during her childhood in the 20s and 30s uh, and, uh, and and her young years into the, the 1940s, her years as a young wife and mother, she always had her pocket New Testament at hand, and she was always reading from it. Mm -hmm. um, and she bought me three different children's Bibles <laughs> so that I would be exposed to the Bible stories from from very early on in life. So we, you know, I was familiar with these things not only from the Mass but also from study at home. We didn't uh, we didn't uh, use the Bible the way Protestants often do, but we knew the Bible. You mm -hmm. know, we didn't cite chapters and verses, but we knew it. But still, I think that the best way to counter that charge is to get to know the Bible better and to get it, get to know it better than anyone else on your block. Mm -hmm. So I want to highlight some of the examples you include in the book. And the first one, St. John Chrysostom. And the, the in that chapter, you talk about the necessity of the Old Testament. And some people that I've encountered kind of throw the Old Testament out, so to speak, and all they want to do is is read and live in the New Testament. But why is that such a bad idea? Because the New Testament is is incomprehensible. It's impenetrable, really, apart from its Old Testament preparation and prefiguration. The Bible is a single book written by a divine author, by God himself. It was inspired. God is the principal author of all of Scripture. And he was preparing the way for redemption, not from the beginning of the gospel, but from the beginning of creation. And we need to understand that. And we need to know all of the different ways he's come to the salvation of his people down through the years in in uh, in, in lesser ways and in greater ways. Mm -hmm. And finally, in the in the fullness of time in Jesus Christ and Jesus himself is the fullness of God's self-revelation uh, to his people and the fullness of salvation for his people. So we need to, to know the entirety of the Bible if we want to understand Jesus. Jesus is quoting the Old Testament all over the place. St. Paul is quoting the Old Testament all over the place. They're doing that not just to show off and, and tell us how much they've read. No, what they want to do is model a way of living for for us, so that we'll follow after them, and we'll know the wisdom and the depths that are there in the Old Testament, and we'll better understand what he's about. 
this was the culture of Jesus and St. Paul and all the apostles. We cannot know them if we don't know the, the Old Testament as well. Uh, you know, I think it was a great temptation in the, the early years of Christianity to just throw the Old Testament under the bus, you know, and, um, and, 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 and wipe it away. You know, there were, there were heretics in the early church who wanted to do that. First, Marcion wanted to do that. And he wanted to edit the New Testament so that it never referred to the Old Testament. <laughs> that is one of the very early and very roundly condemned heresies of the Christian Church. Uh, you know, this is something that 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 Orthodox Christians wanted to do away with, and I, and certainly they were right in that in that impulse. Uh, the the heresy of Marcion and the Gnostics and others who were anti-Jewish, anti-Israel, anti-Old Testament, uh, it was it was something that was wicked, that was poisonous, and uh, and it was it was roundly and forcefully condemned in the early church. It was only revived, you know, in the 19th century, and uh, and then it it came to flourish in the 20th century uh, in in Germany under uh, under Adolf Hitler. Uh, because of his hatred for the Jews, mm -hmm. you know that that became a fashionable idea once again. Let's talk a bit about translation, and if we're going to talk about that, we have to talk about Saint Jerome, who you cover in mm. the book. I mean, he's known to be a bit of a crank, and after reading this <laughs> chapter, it, it becomes obvious why. Why was there so much hang, hand wringing over his translations at the time that he was doing his work? Oh, well, you know, Augustine raised some good ideas, you know, it, it raised some good points when he was he was, you know, tentatively objecting to to Jerome's project, which was to take the various translations. Most of them were local translations uh, into Latin that were used in the churches where, where congregations spoke Latin. So there were many of these translations out there, and people had been using them in the liturgy for hundreds of years by the time of Jerome. And Augustine raised the objection that you're going to be messing with people's experience of the liturgy. You're going to be messing with their memories of Scripture. Um, you're going to be introducing unfamiliar passages to them, and it's, it's going to hurt their piety. There's an argument to be made for that. You know, people still raise that objection every time we make changes to the liturgy in today. Mm -hmm. So, so yeah, that was Augustine's objection. But, you know, Jerome saw that it was necessary because some of the translations just weren't that good. They weren't that accurate. They they used out-of-date language because they had been done so many hundreds of years before. So Jerome tried to take all of those those old Latin translations and provide a uniform Latin edition for the the Western Church, and he succeeded in that. But Jerome did more than that. You know, he thought that wasn't enough. He went he went back and he did a translation of the of the Old Testament and the New Testament from the Greek texts, a new translation, in order to to uh, improve on his former revision of the old Latin texts. And even then that wasn't enough to satisfy <laughs> Jerome. He went and he learned Hebrew so that he could do an old Testament translation, a new old Testament translation from what he considered to be uh, the best Hebrew texts at that time. Uh, so Jerome was something of a prodigy with languages and he was fiercely committed to bringing the Bible 
into the best possible language uh, for the Western Church. His his translation, the Vulgate, has been revised since then by the Church, but it's still what we use today um, as our standard, as our as our measure, really, um, mm-hmm. for for Scripture translations in the Church. So, in the epilogue of the book, you conclude by saying in multiple um, paragraphs that the Scripture and the liturgy and the Mass are tightly interwoven and can't be separated. So how do we effectively relay that? Again, this is similar to the earlier question, but I'm dealing more with the Mass now. How do we effectively relay that to non-Catholics? Because to me, it's just being that I came from that environment and converted, it seems obvious, but when getting into conversation with non-Catholics, sometimes you get a lot of pushback. Well, I think that again, we begin by 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 trying to get them to know the scriptures as well as we can by using the best Bible study st- tools. That's something that I believe uh, because I'm, I'm I've been associated with the St. Paul Center for mm-hmm. for decades now. Uh, our mission is to promote biblical literacy for all Catholics and biblical fluency. Um, for Catholic clergy and teachers. And we make so many of our resources available for free on our website, which is stpaulcenter.com. Um, so uh, so one one way of doing it is by by just using what it's, what's at your disposal, getting to know the Bible better and uh, and be, you know, provide an example um, for a fully informed, uh, Bible Christian, so to speak. Um, but the other thing is, you know, by letting people know, that we get this knowledge primarily through the Holy Spirit when we attend the Mass and we hear the Scriptures read in this particularly graced moment that God has prepared from from, from the dawn of creation, because all from the beginning of creation God knew that this would be the fulfillment that mm-hmm. that He would give Himself to us, body, blood, soul, and divinity, in the Mass. That that's where we would receive him. That's where we would receive the Holy Spirit, and we would we would be graced to understand the words of Scripture um, through the interpretations that are given to us in the homilies. Um, so we can help them with that understanding. First of all, by showing our bona fides, by showing that that we love the Scriptures, that we we've made an effort to know them, and uh, and then we can introduce them to the idea of this context that uh, the New Testament itself seems to suggest. That's why, you know, I try to give uh, as much as I can in the book of, um, of uh, I try to give examples mm-hmm. of, uh, of, of, of the evidence of this from both the Old Testament and the New Testament, so that we can show people that this is just the way of biblical religion, that the Bible is intended for proclamation, it's intended for interpretation, uh, but in the context of the sacred liturgy, that's where, uh, where 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 we find the primary habitat of the Bible. Uh, everything else is great. All the other kinds of study we can do, all of that is great, but it's still secondary to the Mass. Mm-hmm. So, where can people find your book, How the Fathers Read the Bible? I think the best place to get it, usually where you'll find the best price for any of my books, is at CatholicBooksDirect.com. CatholicBooks direct.com. You can also find any other books there too. Mm-hmm. Um, but but they tend to give the best prices for mine. Excellent. Well, Mike, that's all we have time for today. I want to thank you for so much again for taking time out of your schedule and spending it with us. Any closing thoughts? 
No, that's it, Pete. I, I thanks and thank you again for uh, for bringing me back. Uh, I love, love talking about these things, things that are close to my heart and have been for many years now. Excellent. You'll be back again because I know there's more books coming your way. With that, you've been listening to Off the Shelf here on Redbox Media. I'm your host, Pete Sox, the Catholic Book Blogger. And until next time, God bless.